Go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 4. We are in verses 21 to 31 this morning. We are walking our way through this wonderful book of Galatians. Have you ever heard, maybe overheard, maybe eavesdropped on a conversation between two people that maybe were in the same kind of specialized technical field, medicine, science, engineering, whatever, computers. And and these two people that know a lot about this subject, they're talking and they are using a foreign language in your mind. It it makes no sense to you. You're listening and going, "Is, is that English? Are these normal words? I have no concept of what they are talking about, but they both clearly know what's going on. They're using uh, all these acronyms that you're going, I don't know, it sounds like alphabet soup to me. Anybody ever had that? You just, yeah, it, and you know, they both walk away like, oh, that was a good conversation. You're going, what in the world just happened? You might feel that way looking at the passage that we have before us this morning. When I start working on a sermon, I, I, I comb through the text, I read through it several times, get a sense of what it's saying, kind of a, a, a basic outline how to approach it, main topics. And then I go and I I read some commentaries from scholars and what they say on the text. And one of them happened to be very encouraging. Uh, He said this, this text happens to be one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. Uh, Thanks. That was his first, the first sentence on dealing with this passage was that. Now, this is a very technical passage. And so I'm going to challenge you this morning. Don't tune out. I know it's easy. Okay, I know it's, it's, it's easy to have your eyes kind of glaze over and go, I, I don't really get this. I, I just want to live a better life. And this doesn't seem like it's helping me with any of that. There's some really good stuff here. Okay, I'm, I'm going to try to get into what Paul is doing, why he's saying what he's saying, how he's using the Old Testament. It's a very, very technical and detailed passage, but there is a beautiful application for each and every one of us. Now, let me give you a little bit of background to set the stage, especially if you haven't been here with us. As we've walked through Galatians, uh, Paul has been talking about and really debating with these false teachers that came into this region of Galatia, and Paul had gone through and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are saved only through Jesus Christ. Now, if, if you know, Paul was a former Jew himself, and yet he had been saved through Jesus Christ. He came to realize that, that all those rituals, all that Old Testament law and ritual, while it was good and revealing who God is and what his will is in the world, it could not, should not, was never meant to save anybody. Only through Jesus Christ can we be saved. He teaches that over and over and over again. But these false teachers had come in from a Jewish background, and they had said, yes, but Jesus is good. Believe in him, but also you need to do all these works of righteousness. You need to perform all these rituals. You need to have your children go through certain rituals to be counted as a part of God's people. And so they were coming in and teaching these things. So Paul is writing this letter to confront that teaching. And up until this point in the letter, he has been really teaching the Galatians how to think correctly and to overcome this false teaching that's been coming in. He's been encouraging them and he has been flat out challenging them, sometimes a bit harshly. He talked in chapter 4 that the law that was given after God's promise to Abraham could not change this promise that Abraham had received through faith. And so Paul talks about that, says, no, the law later cannot change that. 
Paul talks about his own ministry uh, later in chapter 4. And he says that he has always tried with the Galatians to point them to this promise and to trust in the promise of God. And his fear now is that others are coming in and pulling them away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, up until this point, Paul's really been talking to the Galatians about these false teachers. One of the difficulties in this passage is that it is as if Paul steps into the ring with the false teachers, and he is going to take them on directly. If you look at the very first verse in chapter uh, 4, verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Now, again, we have to understand a bit of cultural background. I think some of us can understand this today. People that really get deep into Christian theology, we love to debate theology. We like to sit down and discuss. The Jewish rabbis were no different. They took a lot of pride in who could form the right argument, who could debate the right way, use the Old Testament in the right way. And that's what these false teachers were doing. They were coming into the church, and the normal people in the church were sitting there kind of overwhelmed with these rabbis saying, we know the right way, just listen to us, we're better teachers Then Paul, and Paul's saying in this passage, if I could paraphrase, all right, guys, you think you know better than me? Let's go. That's the equivalent of what he's doing here. He is going to take on the rabbinical teachers, these false leaders, these false teachers, on their own playing field. He's going to get into the ring with them, theologically speaking. Which is why, as I said earlier, if you're overhearing a very technical argument, it, it It's hard to follow, and that's what this passage is. So we're going to walk through this and understand why Paul is saying what he's saying, what the basis of the argument is, and hopefully at the end of it, we're all going to come out understanding in a much bigger way the promise of God for us, because that's the goal of all of this. It starts with these two sons, these two children. A key part, a key argument of these Jewish teachers is that they were descendants of Abraham. This was the delight of every Jewish person. Abraham received the promise from God for Abraham and his children. And they said, we are his children. They were right. We are his offspring. Now, understand the Galatian church is a bunch of Gentiles, for the most part, non-Jewish. And the false teachers, these, these false teachers were coming in and saying, you need to not only receive Jesus, but become Jewish, and there were certain rituals they could go through for that to take place. And Paul said, no. The way to a right relationship with God is through Christ and Christ alone. You don't have to go back to that law. So, let's understand what's going on with these two sons. Look at verses 21 to 23. Tell me, you who are under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? That Could you imagine some of these scholarly rabbis hearing that? Uh, Yeah, Paul, we're pretty well aware of what it says. He's baiting them, okay? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. Are you blessed yet? Just feel encouraged through that passage? Okay, what is he talking about? First of all, he is tying into the Old Testament understanding, which these people are arguing for, we are the children of Abraham. And Paul's saying, great, 
Let's talk about Abraham's children, because he had two. He had two, and they only counted one of them as this matter of pride. And so Paul says, let's let's look and understand what this is. In Genesis chapter 12, we're first introduced to Abraham. Well, actually 11. But in chapter 12, God gives Abraham this phenomenal promise. It is one of the fundamental covenants, promises of all of Scripture. It really lays the foundation for the rest of Scripture leading all the way up to Jesus Christ that fulfills the promise given to Abraham. And the promise was God coming to Abraham and saying, I will bless you. I will bless you. What that means is, I will be with you, you will be my people. And he said, not just you, Abraham, but all of your offspring. I will bless you. And through you, and this is where Christ really comes in, through you I will bless the entire earth. Through you. Now this is a big deal. The one guy, God showing up and talking to him and saying, I am making a covenant. We've talked in the past, this is an unconditional covenant. There was no stipulation of anything that Abraham had to do. It was strictly said by God to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. But there was a problem. Abraham had no kids. And Abraham and his wife, for all intents and purposes, could not have any kids. They were getting way too old. And so we come to Genesis 15, and Abraham is worried that he can't have kids, and his wife can't have kids. There's no way for this promise to be fulfilled in his mindset. And so he says this to God. And in Genesis 15, we have this another powerful message, powerful promise from God that you will have children. It will be through your offspring, Abraham, that all of this is going to take place. And there's this covenant enactment ceremony, this legal binding of God to Abraham. God saying, I will do this for you. We've talked about that previously. And then we get to Genesis 16. And here's Abraham. He says he trusted God, believed in God. But he's struggling. How? How is God's will going to be carried out? What am I supposed to do? So what does Abraham do? Well, he takes his wife's servant and he has a child through his wife's servant. Now, again, this is so out of the realm of what we can understand. But in that culture, it was, legally speaking, an acceptable way of producing an heir. And Paul is tying into this and saying, think about what Abraham did here. He had a son with the slave woman. Now that son, if you know scripture at all, is Ishmael. He would go on to be the father of the Arab nations. And God comes back to Abraham. In chapter 17, 13 years, this is Genesis 17, 13 years after Ishmael is born, God comes and again repeats his promise. Abraham, you, and he makes it very clear, and your wife, are going to have a child. And Abraham's like, yeah, but we already have a child. God, this is great. You know, your, your plan is being worked out. Bless Ishmael. And God says, yeah, but that's not the way I'm going to carry out my promise to you. You're going to have a child with your wife. And it is through that child that the entirety of the human race will be blessed. And God does, in fact, bless Isaac. Isaac is born. When Sarah is 100 years old, Abraham is 
No, switch that. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old, way past childbearing age. And yet they have this miracle promised child of Isaac. And God does indeed bless Isaac. And he blesses the Jewish people, the family of Isaac, the offspring of Abraham through Isaac. And through that nation, these people, through many ups and downs throughout history, God ultimately blesses them by bringing the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And through Abraham's offspring, we sit here today, blessed in salvation through Jesus Christ, a child, ultimately, of Abraham. And Paul's talked about that with them. But now he's engaging these these teachers, these leaders, in this very technical argument. Because he's saying, okay, you're a child of Abraham, which one? Which one? Because it's not enough to just say, oh, I'm a child of Abraham. He says, clearly, your Old Testament and my Old Testament, he's talking to the Jewish leaders here, our, our scriptures say Abraham had two children, and you differentiate between one and the other. So let's talk about that. He's pointing out a flaw in their argument. They're not really dealing with the scripture in their claim to be the children of Abraham. Now, as he's doing this, he's talking about two children who were born to two different types of women. This is going to be a theme that runs throughout. One is a slave. He's going to talk about the child of the slave woman and being enslaved and what that is. Then he's going to talk about the child of the free woman and being free, and what that is. So so we have these two things, who they're born to, the slave versus the free, and then he's going to talk about how they came about. Okay, And the phrase that Paul uses is that one is born according to the flesh, and one is born as the result of a divine promise. You with me? If you're asleep, raise your hand. Okay, now you're awake, so good. Pete, yeah, I saw you. Okay. Works every time. So let's deal with the first one. Verse 23. At the very beginning. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Now what does Paul mean by according to the flesh? It literally very simply means just in the normal physical way. Okay, Just natural. According to the flesh. It's just the way the world works. But Paul means this in a deeper way. Because he uses this phrase, the flesh, over and over again in all of his writings. And it always, as far as I understand, it always means relating to our sinful nature. The us apart from God. Our own way of doing things. Our own way of figuring things out. What we are capable in and of ourselves, away from God, ignoring God, sometimes acting directly against God. It is our way, the flesh. It's simply our way without considering God whatsoever. And this truly is, when you get to the heart of understanding sin in Scripture, this is it. The essence of sin is not just breaking a law. Yes, that's absolutely a part of it. But the essence of sin is completely ignoring God and it just living as if He doesn't exist or not caring if He exists. It is complete rebellion against God. God, I've got this. I'm doing my own thing. And the Bible says you're living according to the flesh. So that's how Paul talks about this first son, Ishmael, coming about. Now, why? Abraham had a promise from God. And he's sitting there thinking, how can I make this happen? What can I do 
I don't think this was Abraham trying to be rebellious. I don't think it was him trying to not trust in God. I believe it was him saying, I know God wants this to happen. How do I make it happen? The problem was, Abraham was saying, how do I make God's promises happen? And God never told him to do that. He needed to trust that God was very good at making his own promises happen. And so he has Ishmael according to the flesh. His way of doing things, what made sense to him. So this is one child came through this way, Abraham taking his own way. Ishmael was the son according to the flesh. Then Paul says at the end of verse 23 that Isaac was born to the free woman, Sarah, and was the result of a divine promise. This was a unique child. There was no way that anybody associated or or who knew this family would in any way fail to understand that baby was a miracle. There was no way that this husband and this wife could have that child. There's no way. They couldn't be like, look at what we did. Isn't it amazing? Now, I'm not going to go into all the, you know, physical aspects of, yes, Sarah and Abraham were involved, okay? But it's a miracle. Absolute miracle. They were past childbearing age. Isaac was born because God promised that Isaac would be born. Plain and simple. This was not Abraham's way of figuring things out. In fact, he had already said he didn't think this was ever going to work. And yet, God fulfilled his promise. Now, Paul takes these two children and he uses them to say these represent two different ways of trusting God. One is our own way. He calls that the way of the flesh. Us trying to figure out how to do things for God to carry out and make happen what God wants the way of the flesh. The other is the way of the promise, trusting God to carry out his promises. So let's look at these two ways as he now builds upon what he's just described from the Old Testament. Look at verses 24 to 27. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. That's the name of Sarah's servant. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman. You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who are never in labor because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband absolutely clear. Really, we could skip this. Nothing needs to be said because I really think it speaks for itself. No. (laughs) Now we're really getting the heart of the technical issues here. Paul Paul is using here a rabbinical way of looking at the Old Testament to debate other rabbis. He is getting in the ring with them and Paul was a master rabbi. He knew how to do this. He was trained in this method. He used to refute Christians and arrest them using these very same sorts of arguments or how he's going about doing this. So these false teachers are saying, we're better than Paul. And Paul's saying here, yeah, no, I I can meet you on that playing field. What is he doing? He expands this idea of the two children 
to show that there have always been two ways of following God's will or understanding God's will throughout history. He compares the two children to two very important covenants that we've already talked about. The first is the covenant or the promise God made to Abraham. That was an unconditional promise. God said, Abraham, I will do this for you, period. And the Bible says Abraham believed God. And Abraham was considered righteous, not because he did anything amazing, not because he did all these holy rituals, but simply because he believed God. Paul's saying that's one covenant, the covenant with Abraham. The other covenant is the covenant through Moses. After the Israelites are rescued from Egypt and they're brought into the wilderness on their way to the promised land, God meets them on Mount Sinai and he gives them the Old Testament law. And we talked about this covenant. It was a promise to the people, and here's the condition, if you obey me, I will bless you in the land land will produce fruit for you. It will produce harvest, crops, your families will be blessed, and I will protect you from all outsiders. But if you do not, the land will be dry. You will experience famine and pestilence, and foreign invaders will come in and and occupy your land. That is a conditional covenant. Now, we've talked about already, one does not overwrite the other. God had grabbed hold of the Jewish people and said, you're my people. The Mosaic Covenant comes along and says, now as you live in relationship with me, this is what it needs to look like. You need to understand who I am and you need to obey me. But the one doesn't negate the other. Now, here are these two covenants. So what are these two ways? In verses 24 to 25, Paul's going to talk about these two covenants to help us understand two ways of following God. The first is the covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. This is the law. What do we need to do to make ourselves righteous? How do we follow God? How do we clean up our lives? How do we keep God happy, if you want to put it that way? And Paul says this led to the Jewish people in their land. They had a capital city. It was the city of Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That's where the law was taught and preached. And people came and they brought their sacrifices. All of this in this physical city, this physical land of Jerusalem. But understand what Jerusalem was at the time of Paul. There was still a temple, there were still these teachers. And all of it was pointing to this Messiah. A Messiah who had already come. And so here they were doing everything they could to fix themselves up, to to be righteous before God. And yet the Messiah, the very Son of God, had already come and they missed it. I love that we're talking about this today with the Passover Seder tonight as we look at some of these rituals and how they pointed ultimately to Jesus Christ. There's an emphasis here in this passage and throughout Scripture, that what God tells his people to do on earth, in our life and in our world, is simply a lesser reflection or a shadow of the perfect dwelling place of God. And so he's tying into that and saying what goes on there according to the flesh in our own way of doing things in Jerusalem is what we can do. But God's way is always higher and better. This goes on throughout Scripture. 
The tabernacle was given to the Old Testament people as the place to worship God. Eventually, it becomes the more permanent temple. And all of this was to say this was a reflection. It says, make it this way, construct it this way, because God was patterning it after his holy dwelling place. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 through 3, this comes back at the end of Scripture. John declares as he sees the end of all time and the beginning of eternity, he says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and where is it? Coming down out of heaven from God. This is the ultimate Jerusalem, the perfect dwelling place of God. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the fulfillment of what Paul's talking about here. He's saying you, you can keep your earthly Jerusalem and our own ways of doing things and after the flesh and how we can figure things out. He's like, I don't want that. I want the true Jerusalem. Isn't that what we've been looking forward to all along? The very dwelling place of God for God to come and be with us? Throughout the Old Testament, there is a theme of God working out his plan in such a way that we know that it is God doing it, not us. And this is where we see in Galatians chapter 4, verse 27. Be glad, barren woman. You who never bore a child, shout for joy, cry aloud. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Well, this is harsh. And, and if there's anyone struggling to have a child, that's probably not a great verse for you to look at. And yet, in a way it is. Because in it is this promise, an ongoing promise of God and the way that God works throughout Scripture. Have you ever stopped to think of the number of women in Scripture that had children that shouldn't have? That according to natural methods and natural means, it made no sense whatsoever. Many of whom had tried for years and years and years, were well past childbearing age, and yet it happens. We've been talking about Isaac. He's the first. Here, Sarah is able to have Isaac when everybody would have said, no way. In fact, Sarah herself laughed at God when God said, Abraham laughed at God when God said, this is what's going to happen. But there are others. Joseph in the Old Testament. His mom is older and can't have children over and over and over again. And yet Joseph is born. And then his brother Benjamin. And Joseph ends up being sent ahead of his... Well, that's a nice way of saying it. Uh, His family sold him into slavery. His brothers were pretty awful to him. He ends up in Egypt. And God uses him to deliver his entire family, the entire nation of Israel at that time, who was really just a smaller family. Joseph. Think of Samuel. Samuel's mother couldn't have children. She had begged and pleaded with God, come to the temple year after year and prayed in agony. God, grant me a child. Finally, Samuel is born. Samuel will grow up to anoint the first king and the second king of Israel. God uses him in a powerful way. We get to the New Testament. John the Baptist is born. His mom, Elizabeth, is, again, past childbearing age, had never been able to have a child. 
And yet she has this child and John grows up and he becomes the one that paves the way for the coming Messiah. He is the prophet that announces he is coming. Get ready. Listen to him. And God uses him in a powerful way. There's another one. I mean, really, if you think about it, isn't there one child that was born to a woman that really shouldn't have been able to have children? Isn't there one story that kind of trumps all the rest? Today, don't we celebrate on Palm Sunday the day that that child, no longer a child, rode on a horse, on a donkey, into Jerusalem? And the week would unfold, and he would be put on a cross and crucified in our place. And then Sunday, we're going to celebrate that child who by the flesh should never have been born, could not have been born, and yet he would rise from the dead. Jesus is a child of promise. Mary couldn't have a child. She was a virgin. And yet, miraculously, God gives her Jesus. Understand why that's a theme in Scripture. God always wants us to be abundantly clear that when these things take place, he gets all the credit. See, Abraham could have looked at Ishmael and told his friends about Ishmael and said, look at what I did. God promised me this and I figured it out and I made it happen. He could never say that about Isaac. Isaac was an absolute miracle. He came about, Isaac came about simply because of a promise and not because of Abraham's efforts. So here we have these two ways. The way of trusting in God's promise through faith and the way of figuring things out on our own, doing what makes sense to us according to the flesh. Now Paul's going to talk more about the way of the promise. Look at verse 28 through 31. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. He says, which child are you claiming? What's your family? Are you following the the way of the flesh, what you can do? Is that really what you're talking about? Because he says, ultimately, don't miss what he's saying about these Jewish rabbis. He says, ultimately, they are more sons of Ishmael than they are sons of Isaac. Can you imagine how offensive that was to them? But he is calling them out using their own methods of interpreting and applying scripture and saying, you guys are not being honest with your own scripture. Paul just dropped the mic and walked away. He just beat them at their own game. But now he's talking back to the the people of Galatia. These Christians that were struggling, they were being pulled in two different directions. And he says, listen, as amazing as it is, these guys are telling you about being the child of Abraham and really they want to claim Isaac and that's beautiful and that's wonderful. But they said, you're the child of the promise because you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have been saved through the ultimate child of the promise, Jesus Christ. There was tension in the Old Testament between Ishmael and Isaac. It's tension between those two people groups throughout all of history. And at one point, Abraham had to send Ishmael and his mom away. And it's a difficult part in the story. 
But Paul ties into that and says, there's always a tension between those who say you need to figure things out your own way, do what you can according to the flesh, and those who say God saves us simply through his promise and our faith in that promise. That's what was going on in Galatia. And if I could, that same debate, that same struggle has gone on ever since Jesus Christ died and rose again. There are always teachers that will come along and say, yes, Jesus is good, trust in him, but then you have to do all these other things. You have to do these special days and perform these special rituals or God won't accept you. You have to clean your life up. You have to fix yourself, make yourself righteous enough for God. The gospel simply states no one can make themselves righteous enough for God. And God already knows that. He loves you. And he sent his son, the child of the promise, to fulfill the promise that God would bless us through the promise. And everyone who trusts in that promise through Jesus Christ is saved Righteous before God, not based on our own efforts, but simply based on God's efforts through Jesus Christ. Paul's saying the way of the flesh, the way of figuring things out on your own, always leads to slavery. You're enslaved to your own desires, your own ways of figuring things out. You're bearing the weight of the world on your shoulders. How do I do this? I know God wants me to be righteous. How do I make myself righteous? How do I figure this out? And you feel that slavery just down on your shoulders constantly. Paul's saying to these people, and I say to you today, why would you want that? Why would you go back to that when you've been set free through Jesus Christ? Finally, verse 31. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Remember your identity in Jesus Christ. Remember your identity in Jesus Christ. This is why for us as a church, we dig deep into the word of God. Because trite sayings, little encouraging sayings, while they can be helpful won't help you to go deeper in your identity of who you are in Jesus Christ and understanding the depth of the promise that God has been carrying out throughout all of history to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. We must remember our identity as people of the promise. God accomplished this through God's own effort and not ours. So that one day when someone asks you, why do you go to church? Why are you a Christian? Don't start with, I did this. Start always with God sent his son. He gets all the credit, all of it, and all the glory. These are the two ways. There's our way and God's way. Always. We can wrap up our way in different papers, different colors, different ways of explaining it, different rituals, even different worldly religions. We can wrap up our way in many different ways, but it's still our way. Do we want to be a slave? Do we want it all on our shoulders? Or do we want to be set free by Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a tough passage but with a beautiful promise. You are so much better at carrying out your will than we could ever hope to be. 
And you don't come to us saying, I've done this much, now you do the rest. And you don't come to us and say, God helps those who helps themselves. That is not scripture. It is not truth. It is not biblical. And it certainly doesn't lead to salvation. The truth is, from your word, you help those that trust you. Who believe in you. Who understand we have nothing to add to your promises. Nothing to give to you of any value. We are worthless and fallen and enslaved in our sin. We have been following after our own ways, the ways of the flesh. And yet through Jesus Christ we are set free. And we have an undeniable, unmistakable, unchangeable promise. From you. That we are saved. May we, Father not live our own way, but live the way of the promise, trusting the promise. And I pray if there's anyone here today that's asking that nagging question in the back of their heads, which way am I going? Show them your way. Point their eyes, their hearts to Jesus Christ, the ultimate child of the promise. May today be the day that they say, I'm done with my way. I trust Jesus Christ is my Savior, in whose powerful and freeing name we pray. Amen.